1 John 2, 12 through 17. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven, and for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, kids. So glad to see you guys. And, and Kirk, thank you. I think next week I'm going to try to preach with a cloud voice. So I'm going to practice that this week. And also I think I saw I was given a side mohawk in one of those pictures. So it's going to be a different experience next week. So tune in next week as well. That was great, guys. So good to see all of your faces and hear those kids' voices singing and, and also reading scripture. Thanks for helping us out with that. David emails you this week or checks in with you and needs some help with video. I encourage you. Uh, try, some, try something new. Go for it and get it to him as quick as possible so we can keep putting these great clips together for you guys. Well, we've been working our way through this uh, short letter of 1 John, which is written by the Apostle John, who was an eyewitness, do you remember, to Jesus' life and death and resurrection. It, it's a terribly practical letter written so that you and I, we can have a certainty about different aspects of our faith and be full of complete joy in so doing. This morning, John wants to give us a way to assess our loves. What do you love? What do you love most? If you gave yourself the freedom to answer that question honestly, we'd get a lot of different answers. You know, you've heard it said, you are what you eat. Well, a recent book got it right when it was titled, you are what you love. What do you mean by that? The author meant what you love shapes you, shapes how you view the world, what you value and where you spend your time and money and what you treasure and protect are usually the things you love most. Well, this morning, John wants us to know who we are to love and why we love him and affirm us in this before he goes on to exhort us in the how to examine our loves. This morning we will compare and contrast a love for the Heavenly Father with a love for the world, learning how to put all of our loves in their proper place. So grab your Bible. Hope you got it open on a smartphone or a tablet or your book copy and uh, have your outline as well. Maybe you got it on the screen you, or download it if you haven't from the email we sent yesterday to you right now. As we'll start with that first question I, I, I began with who we love, and why we love him. Let's first look at that, the who and the why in this passage. You know, there's really no more important questions for your life. Why is that? That quotes questions of who and what or why we love. It's so important because human beings have been wired 
we've been actually created by God to be loving beings. Or you could even say worshiping beings. I mean, that's, we are just made that way. We can't help it. We're, we come from the womb that way. So you could rightly say then that every person in the world actually is worshiping something. And everybody in the world actually has been converted to loving that thing. Everybody's trying to convert somebody to something, and we all have been. It would be that person, that thing, or things, or, or God that you love. That would be the answer to that question, who we love and why we love. So let's take a look at some of those answers that John gives us from this passage. As we look first, here's the reason that comes from verses 12 through 14. We love and why we love because we're forgiven, fathered, and victorious. All of those things. Now, at first glance, you look at these two sections that we heard the kids read today, verses 12 through 14 and then 15 through 17. You look at these and you kind of, I, I, I did this week, they don't really seem to go together as I, I looked at them. I admit that. I came to him and I, I was a bit confused by John's train of thought with this, this beautiful uh, poetry kind of section and down to this 15 through 17. But there's actually a wonderful compliment that's taking place. You know, if you've been here any length of time, that I would call us and desire us to be a gospel-centered church. We're putting up a great article even about that this morning now, what that means, that word gospel-centered. We talked about it last week in our passage, the gospel being the truth and lens through which we view everything, through which we uh, assess the validity and assurance of our faith last Sunday. Well, here, what we see in verses 12 through 14 is John giving us encouragement by the truths of the gospel before he gives us the hard work and exhortation to examine our loves and our lives. That's the compliment taking place between these two sections today. The gospel in Scripture and in the life of, of a disciple is always peppered in. It's always there. And so it must be in your life. Why is this so important? You think, why well, is this a buzzword Pastor Jeff likes to say, you know, gospel-centered, gospel-centered, gospel-centered. And it has become sort of that, a buzzword. But it, it's so important because obedience and change by willpower alone doesn't last. Change by mere force of your will alone never lasts. You've tried it before. Maybe the thought uh, line kind of goes like this. I'm really going to make an effort to be patient with my kids this time and not get angry. I, or I'm really, this time, this time, I'm not going to look at that on the computer again. Or, you know, I, I'm really going to try hard this time to stop being short with my wife. I've just been getting so irritable with her. I'm really going to try this time. And you know, as that train of thought goes, and it's a good train of thought, you may have a season of success, a time of victory, but inevitably you will fall back into old grooves of sin. Now don't get me wrong. Obedience and our growth comes through great effort on our part. But uh, even as we know our hearts uh, love to slide over into legalism, we kind of like to leave it there and believe that false sense of assurance that I can pull myself up by my bootstraps. I can do it alone. I can accomplish this. 
But lasting, true, biblical obedience and change is an eternal change of loves, a reordering of our loves that our sinful nature has distorted. Obedience doesn't merely come by fresh willpower, but by fresh love. The church father, St. Augustine, did some of the best work for us on this. As he pulled it out of the scriptures, you think like, how practical can somebody be who wrote in the 300s and 400s? Come on, Pastor Jeff, really? Yeah, he did this great work on this idea of disordered loves in the heart. Here's what he said about it from his On Christian Doctrine. He said, living a just and holy life requires one, requires one to be capable of an objective and impartial evaluation of things to love, to love things. That is to say, in the right order, so that you do not love what is to not be loved or fail to love what is to be loved or have a greater love for what should be loved less or an equal love for things that should be loved less or more or a lesser or greater love for things that should be loved equally. Augustine got it right when he talked about this idea of disordered love. And really, some of his thoughts sound almost like they were directly pulled from this First John passage. And he did a great service to the church by putting it in this kind of language for us. Well, let's get that affirmation we're talking about and the encouragement by refreshing our love right now before we take a look at our disordered loves. Who we love and why we love. We, taught, we said we're forgiven, fathered, and victorious. And in verses 12 to 14, John addresses three li- groups twice. Little children, all right, kids, you can start doing your, your self-portrait, fathers, and young men. Now, it's possible here, John is designating all believers here with these terms, little children. Maybe they're the new believers. Fathers, maybe they're the older uh, believers. And young men, maybe they're the maturing ones coming up in, in the faith. Uh, but all these truths, real, truths really apply to all disciples of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis had a great quote when he said, Fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He's a rebel who must lay down his arms. And when we lay down our arms, when we surrender, we are welcomed into his family as children, little children. And he becomes our father. He's fathered us. How does he do that? First, through forgiveness in Christ. I want us to think about this. This is so important. You know, we're not just forgiven. We're forgiven and ushered into a family. But it starts with forgiveness in Christ. In verse 12, he says, I'm writing to you children to let you know your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. This is why we love. We've been forgiven. I mean, it's the simplest basic truth of the gospel. When you trust in Jesus, your sins are washed away. Your record becomes white as snow in God's eyes. Positionally, before God, you're seen as holy. Now, that's practically going to play out in growth and sanctification, we call it through life. But in that moment, positionally before him, you're as white as snow. But this is so easy to forget And you know the enemy loves to use this on you. That nagging thought that many times 
I believe, is even a spiritual attack in our life. Oh, he, he hasn't covered this sin. You feel the guilt and shame. Trust your feelings, not his promise. Your sins are still yours. Ah, oh, you can't be sure, can you? That's that nagging voice. Well, fresh love for God comes from sending the devil packing with this truth every day. Your sins are forgiven if you've trusted Christ. There's a place in 2 Peter where he says, and, and John's going to encourage us too to grow in obedience. And Peter do, is doing the same thing in his, le- his second letter. He says, do you want to be faithful, virtuous, self-controlled, steadfast, and, and loving, don't you? He says, if you're not, do you know what your biggest problem is? You have forgotten or you are doubting God's forgiveness. Here's that verse where he says it. Whoever lacks these qualities, that's the ones I just mentioned, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten, here it is, that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, which is what First John is doing for us. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. To forget we are forgiven means we will lack these obedient qualities. To forget it. And so Peter says, make your calling and election sure. Find that assurance, which is what 1 John did for us last week. Uh, a fresh obedience and, and, and fresh uh, assurance always comes from a fresh understanding of our forgiveness and a daily appreciation of our forgiveness. That's what produces a fresh obedience. What also comes from knowing that we are fathered by adoption. So forgiven in Christ, the why and how we love, or who and why we love. And second, fathered by adoption. In verse 13 and 14, John says, the fathers, they know him who is from the beginning. He says in 14, children, you know the father. And remember, first John, John's been asking us to be sure you know you know him. When you come to faith in Jesus, you not only get Jesus, but you get the Father as the Spirit adopts us in to God's family. You're given a family relationship you can never lose. It's the best father you could wish for. You know, our earthly fathers, uh, they disappoint us at times. We can't hold on to them forever. And some of you have lost your fathers through uh, a death, they're passing away, or maybe through relationship breakdown. But we know that this relationship will abide and last forever. And not only that, this father is pleased with you. He enjoys you. This has to not just be a truth you believe. It's got to be real to your imagination and your heart as well. The novel Gilead, which I've uh, challenged some of you to read, and I, I got a message, some of, some of you have already finished it, actually. Uh, the novel Gilead is a story of a pastor in his mid-70s. <clears throat> and this pastor's dying from heart failure. And the, the book is really his memoir to his seven-year-old son that he expects him to read long after he's dead. You know, a pattern of First John is even similar to this novel. 
He's writing so you know that you know the Father. The pastor in this story, whose name is John as well, uh, lost his first wife and child in childbirth, both of them. And he didn't remarry and didn't think he would remarry for many years, but he actually did later in life. When he married a woman, I think it was somewhat 20, 30 years his junior, uh, he ended up having a child in his 70s, late 60s, late in life, and now he's writing in his mid-70s as he's about to die. And he speaks to his child as a father of the astonishment of becoming a father again after losing his first wife and child. And he says this, I'd never believed I'd see a wife of mine toting on a child of mine. It still amazes me every time I think of it. I'm writing this in part to tell you that if you ever wonder what you've done in your life, and everyone does wonder sooner or later, you've been God's grace to me, a miracle, a something more than a miracle. You may not remember me very well at all, and it may seem to you to be no great thing to have been the good child of an old man in a shabby little town you'll no doubt leave behind. If only I had the words to tell you. It echoes John, doesn't it? I'm writing to you so that you may know the Father, so that you may know you know the Father. It's the miracle of your birth into the family of God. And the joy you've brought me, you hear that in John's words in the novel Gilead, Pastor John in the novel, but also in the Apostle John's words as well. Oh, if only I had the words to tell you the pastor says in that novel. But do you know something? We do have the words. Zephaniah 3.17, this great verse I love to say to my children. I think we even had it on the wall in one of their bedrooms at one of our homes. Is this. The Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love he will no longer rebuke you. But will rejoice over you with singing. But you see, those words, they they have to not just be words that you believe. They have to become real to your heart and to your imagination. Uh, Like a wind in the sails, you might say, to give us an example. The sails exist on their own, don't they? As they're, They're up and tied to the masts of the boat. And so does the wind. The wind is out there existing, but they have to come together. The boat's got to be on the water, out in the ocean, or out on a lake. And the wind has to come together with those sails. But when they do, watch out what happens. Have you experienced, imagined the Father singing over you with loud rejoicing and gladness? When you do, it will become the wind in your sails. It'll it'll drive your life, not just because you believe it, because it fills you with a fresh assurance and understanding that you're forgiven, you're fathered, and here's our third one, you're victorious. We're victorious in abiding faith as it abides in us and as his word abides in us. This section wraps up in verse 14. It says, these young ones, they've overcome the evil one by abiding faith, and the abiding word. I think in John's mind, these young ones, they're battling, fighting against, in a strong way against the evil one. As they're maturing in their faith, 
They're actively engaging in spiritual warfare. How? Well, by knowing and rehearsing the truths of Christ. He says, abide, have the Scripture abide within you. That's why it's so important to have Scripture in your heart. You know, we don't always have a Bible open. You don't always have your phone on when temptations or the lies of the enemy come. But when you have the Scripture in your heart, it can never be taken from you. When it abides there. The enemy loves to tell us lies. And if we don't combat them with the truth, what happens? We begin to believe the lie. You've heard of those that have, they're so used to telling lies or hearing lies that they begin to believe them. That can happen to us too as followers of Christ. Well, no, you say, uh, you say at that moment, I'm a saved child of God. My sins are forgiven. Christ has died on my behalf and is raised to life where he now sits in heaven as my advocate. That's the message of 1 John. And he's mine. And I am his through faith. You tell yourself those truths. You rehearse the scriptures you know to battle those thoughts and those doubts and those lies. And that one that I hope all of us have in Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If there was one verse to have memorized, that would be the one. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he's practically looking over you as a, as a, a loving, rejoicing, singing over you, Zephaniah said, Father, because your position is in Christ as he abides in you and you abide in his word. These are so practical. I, I, to make this even more practical, you're, you're struggling with your obedience or your assurance. Write down those three words on a sticky note. Forgiven, fathered, victorious. Write them down on a big piece of uh, uh, um, butcher paper at home for your kids or construction paper. Put them on your kitchen wall. Put them on your bathroom mirror. Put them on your steering wheel. Forgiven, fathered, victorious. It's these words of encouragement and affirmation John wants you to have. That's why he starts the passage with this little poem. But now he goes on to give us the encouragement, the exhortation in verses 15 through 17 of the hard work to examine your loves. So after looking at the who we love and why we love, now we ask this question, how to examine our loves? How do we do that now, practically speaking? You know, John encourages us to love God the Father in this next section and not the world here. That's the challenge. Examine your loves and see if you love the world or th the things of the world more or God more. He says, don't love the world. And here at this point, we've got to stop for a second because this is one of the most, I'd say, misunderstand words in the Bible, the world, what John means by the world. What does John mean by when he says, don't love the world, but love God? And Christians have gotten this wrong for decades, and when we do, it's devastating in the church, and it's devastating in our lives. This word, world, is used a couple of different ways in the Bible. Many have read this, and here's where the mistake happens. They've read this, and they've heard John say, well, well John says, you know, don't love the physical things of the world. It's bad. They're, they're tainted. So withdraw from it. Get away from those, those pagans who are out there and, and all their cultural productions. Let's just pull up the drawbridge and, and isolate and, and close ourselves off from everyone and everything so we don't get contaminated. That was one of the 
the downsides of the early fundamentalist movement. There was no nuance there. Everything was a primary doctrine. There was no nuance to it. And what happened is it became kind of a, a dualism that Christians even practiced. Material world, bad. Spiritual world, good. And that's just not biblical. And that's not what John is saying here when he says, don't love the world. Why do we know that? God created the material world. Uh, and, and his creatures, Christians and non-Christians, produce a lot of good things that bring God glory and honor, whether they know it or not at times. You know, I was listening to a pastor this week, Tim Keller's sermon uh, on this uh, topic and idea in this passage, and he said, you know how you can tell a Christian who is bought into this line of thinking that when John says don't love the world, it's like, oh, get away from all the physical stuff or things or matter out there? He says, here's how you can know. He gave, he gave four uh, ways and signs to tell. If you're a person that's maybe not thinking clearly about this or somebody else. He said, people who think this way, uh, first one were this. They're very prudish about sex. They think it's demeaning. It's kind of beneath them. And they forget that it's actually a good gift of God. Here was the second one. Uh, people that believe the world, when John says don't love the world, think it's the matter and material and people out there. They, they tend to say Christians should have nothing to do with social action or the community or politics. Here was the third one. The way to serve uh, your God. Well, this is the real way. Leave your secular job and go into full-time ministry. That's the only way to do it. And here was the fourth one. People that view this uh, uh, world in a, in a correct way have a negativity towards art and culture unless it was specifically written by and for Christians. So just some ways to assess if maybe you haven't even yourself thought through that clearly. It's a, it's a summarizing that the, the world is bad. Get away from it. And when we think that way, what happens? Our mission shrivels. We become fearful. We miss out on actually appreciating and engaging in really good things that might be part of our culture that point to the beauty and truth and goodness that is all God's anyways. And we pull back and pull up the drawbridge. Here's another way to interpret that word world when John says don't love the world. Here it is, number one for us. We have to see that the love of the world, it's an over-desire for good things that we make into ultimate things. That's the other way that I think John is actually using this word when he says, don't love the world. It, it's like a worldview, a way of looking at the world and the material things in the world as if that is all there is. That's all we think about. and That's all we would see as good or, or, uh, or relevant to our life. It's taking and making the good things of the world into ultimate things in your heart and life and your love rather than looking at the goods of the world in the big picture like a Christian should, the big picture of eternity, and the big picture of knowing that the material world is not all there is. There's a spiritual world behind it. That's how the Christian should think. That's how John is encouraging us to think here. They're both material and spiritual. They're both part of God's plan. And in fact, he died to redeem both the spiritual and the physical. And so sometimes as Christians, we've, we've forgotten the physical, and so we haven't done as well in areas of, of, of caring for the poor, social justice, um, uh, you know, looking at those good things in the world we can ad take advantage of. When the church has done that right, which we have at many times in history, 
we're holding those both in balance. That God has died to redeem both the material and the spiritual. But here's where the problem comes in. We can have an over-desire for the physical good things. And when we do, it destroys our life. Verse 16. In verse 16, there's something so important. I can't stress this enough. So important for understanding the human heart, for understanding your heart and your loves and the sin that comes out of your heart. You know, the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Where your heart is, where your treasure treasure is, there is where your heart and your love will be. The verse describes this love of the world. uh, Verse 16, as a desire of the eye, a desire of the flesh, you know, we don't usually do this in our sermons. Sometimes we do, but uh, as we have to look actually at a specific word and a Greek word. But it's so important here, this word desire. It's the Greek word epithumia. And what it means and why it's so important for us is that the meaning gets to the heart of who we are and the heart of our loves. Epithumia means an over-desire for something. Think of the word epicenter, like the epicenter of an earthquake. It's the strong center point from where all the action and all of the shaking and all the moving comes from. This desire of, 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 the, of the body and desire of the eyes, it's an intense over-desire. Our translation just says desire. Yours might say lust. Neither of those actually get it how strong this word actually is. So the love of the world is when something the eye sees, something the body touches or can touch, or the pride of life, the pride of things, John says in verse 16, the pride of accomplishments, is over-desired. You might put it this way. A good thing becomes an ultimate thing is a real simple way to put it. So, money, sex, food, career, looks, knowledge, beauty, your body. The list could go on and on. These are all good things. But when they take priority in our loves, watch out. Because you will destroy your life to get them. And they will never satisfy you in the way your heart is telling you they will. And here's the, the bad thing, the sad thing. You'll lose every one of them at some point. They become ultimate. When they do become ultimate. They become God things. And replacements for God, our ultimate love, which is really a a really practical way to help us understand what the Bible means when it talks about idols. At the end of 1 John, if you've got your scripture open, turn there. Flip there real quick, chapter 5 at the end there. It's really strange. He gets to the end of his book, and this chapter is flowing along, and he comes to this last uh, verse of the the book, and he just kind of says, well, keep yourselves from idols. It seems like a strange ending. He just kind of, is this a tag on? Is this like a, you know, just an end on? Well, where did he talk about this in his letter, idols? Right here. It's the over-desire from your heart for good things. That's what John means by the love of the world. You see why it's so important? And why it's so important that we don't get that wrong? wrong? So you have to see first that your ultimate problem first is disordered loves and over-desire for something. But here's our second way to assess our loves. We have to identify uh, the over-desire of the flesh and, and the eye and pride. What is that for you? Uh, it could, it's different for all of us. Let's look at how this practically plays out with a couple of examples. 
Let's look at the uh, desire of the flesh first, this, this area, and then we'll look at uh, the others. Desire of the flesh. Let's, t- let's take food and drink and sex. Now, food and drink are good. God made them, didn't he? He gave us, the, the, us taste buds. We need food and drink to survive, and, and heaven will be, more than anything, a feast. What about sex? It's good. God made it. He made us male and female so we can interact in this unique way. And nothing is even wrong, I would say, with the pleasure of sex. God gave it to us. But when they're over-desired, they become like a little god to you. And when they do, you will rearrange your whole life for them. Think addiction, that word even. And you'll destroy others and use all your resources to get them and even risk in your life when it rules you. In fact, a lot of times, these good things can become the way through which you handle all of life and the stressors of life. One pastor said, there's a real clear way to put it, he said, you, you can eat to live, but when you live to eat, that's a problem. Or you can have sex to live, but when you live for sex, watch out what it'll do in your life. Now, eating disorders are complex, and it's been just even in the last few decades we've understood them more, but when you use food as a strategy of control in your life, whether by excess or depriving yourself, it's an over-desire. Or it becomes what today most would call an addiction, sex addiction, alcoholism. Now, apart from the real physical, biological realities of people who struggle in this way, why would there not also be a spiritual component of idolatry? We're both physical and spiritual. We do this with all kinds of things. Desire of the flesh, John calls them. Well, that's food and drink. How about sex? We said it's created by God, but it's created to point us to the relationship of Jesus with the church, the intimacy there, the faithfulness and covenant of God with us, his fidelity to us, and his promise-keeping that's mirrored in the act of sex in marriage. And when it's done in that context, it's the most vulnerable thing there is. You see the person for exactly what they are, blemishes and all. Your desire for sex and sex and marriage is to point you to that. It's to point you towards that. It's only ever a sign of a really a, a larger desire you have to be completely known and vulnerable and loved by your maker. That's part of its purpose. That's why it only works in marriage. Because God made it and designed it for that way. Because there in marriage is the only place you have a totally unbreakable commitment on a human level. It's only there that you can finally be truly vulnerable to that other, that person. When it's detached from marriage and over-desired, what do we do? You use others for sex rather than use sex for what it was meant for. You'll blow up your family for it. You'll, you'll objectify people as pieces of flesh only and, and consume them. Desires of the flesh. Over-desires for good things. How about desires of the eye, John mentioned in verse 16? What are those? Beauty, looks, appearance. And, and Christians are, are, are to be able to understand, okay, beauty is good. All beauty is made by God. But what is more fleeting than the external beauty? Of anything, 
drive a, a, a brand new car off the lot and how much does it depreciate the moment you cross that curb and go into the street? A brand new riding mower. Ah, fresh young face. How fleeting those things are. True beauty, the Christian knows, is from the heart. When we view beauty that way, it puts the love of beauty in its proper place. How about the pride of life John mentions here? That's the third in that little list in verse 16. The pride of life, I think to John, is the worst. That's the order, I think, even. But in the church, we tend to think the lust of the body is the worst. That's how we've tended to function over the history of the church. When Jesus said, the prostitutes and tax collectors are closer to heaven. Why? They know they're sinners. It means if you fall into that category where you are one who struggles with the lust of the body and flesh, Jesus is saying, you're closer to finding God. Now the pride of life, I think John is saying, is even in an ascending order of seriousness. It's loving achievement, recognition, boasting in accomplishments. And I think this is probably one we all struggle with more and is more prevalent in the church. My way, my rights, easily offended, seeking power and influence. You know, nobody, nobody tell me what to do. I may be part of your group, but just don't challenge me, what I hold dear. So what do we do? What do you do once you find where you're over-loving something, over-desiring something? Do you just try harder? More willpower? What we said this morning, that will ultimately never work, and it actually feeds into our desire to be our own Savior in legalism. Here's where we end today. The third, how to assess your loves. We have to see the solution is the expelling power of a greater love that lasts. And John says, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. It's not in him, he says. It's actually a different way of saying there's a kind of love that God hates. It's the love of the world not even thinking about God, finding all your pleasure, joy, and life and experience in the material stuff of this world. And the way you cast out the love of the world, you focus on verses 12 to 14, which we just did. The assurance and the, the truths of the gospel that he was preparing us for this. That's the complement of the two parts of the passage here. John was preparing us for this by starting in 12 to 14, all those great truths so often in the Christian life, you know what we do? We just jump to f- verses 15 to 17. Uh, give me what to do. Give me the list. Give me the, give me the rules. Let me, let me, give me something measurable, objective. So often we jump right to verses 15 through 17. Be this way. Don't do that. We've all done it. We do it sometimes daily. We, we do this in our family and in our church. And You know, when you do that, you can create great little moralists but not disciples of Jesus Christ. You just can't. The only way to reorder a love, to put it in its proper place, is with a greater love. And through life, most people don't do that. And most people, just what they do is they exchange a material love for maybe a more important material love at that time in their life. 
Here's how that works. The over-desire of lust and the strength of youth, youth gets replaced at middle age by a over-desire for career and advancement and money. And then we come to old age and leave behind, what we want to leave behind is a respectable family and a great legacy. I mean, those are all good things in and of themselves. But most people just, in life, advance from one thing to the next as their greater love, as they age from youth to middle age to old age. Not the Christian. Thomas Chalmers, a 19th century Scottish preacher, had this incredibly relevant sermon entitled The Expulsive Power, expel is to push something out, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. In our terms, you would say, a greater love in the heart that puts a lesser love in its place, or that's how Augustine might say it. In the sermon, which we're going to link online for you, a PDF to it, it can be some hard reading, but this part is, uh, I think, pretty clear. Here's what Thomas Chalmers said. The heart is so constituted, or that means made up, the heart is so made up this way that the only way to dispossess it of an old affection, here love there, old love, is by the expulsive, expelling power of a new one. What cannot be thus destroyed may be dispossessed, and one taste may be made to give way to another, and to lose its power entirely as the reigning affection or love of the mind, and you could add their heart. So practical. As I said, most people in life just go from one material good thing to another. As they age, they just whatever something becomes more important at that stage of life. But John says, if you love the world and only live on that plane and just exchange those kind of loves, the love of the Father is not in you. How do you overcome your over-desires? It is not fresh willpower. It's fresh love. The knowing you know God of 1 John, the intimacy of the Father, the truths of the gospel, becoming the wind in your sails. You know as a child, you don't know how much your parents love you. You just can't. You just don't. How much they've sacrificed for you. How much they did for you. You realize when. When you grow up and have your own kids. You have to so focus on the love of the father as one of his children. And, and try to understand that the love he has for you in Christ, that it becomes real. It becomes a greater love that expels the lesser love or at the very least, puts it in its proper place. You see how practical this book is for us? How practical it is to just stop and take these three points? To see first, sin is an over-desire. To see second, identify what are your over-desires, your disordered loves. And then again, we come back to the truths of who God is and his gospel. And they have to become real, not just to your mind, but to your imagination and heart, so that they expel those lesser loves with that greater love. Obedience and change never come through fresh, a fresh obedi- uh, willpower, but through fresh love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this time to be together, to enjoy your word, to look at this book of 1 John. We ask that you help us this week examine our loves to see what true over-desire is, and then to look at the gospel of Jesus to expel those lesser loves with a greater love for him. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.